Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. It is, uh, it is not Friday. <laughs> it's Thursday, the 21st of October, 2021. Uh, I want us to not turn away from our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Let me read to you a notice that families in Afghanistan who are known to be Christians and are known to have um, led their children to be Christians, I want to read to you a notice um, that they are receiving in their homes. So this was um, posted by a friend on Twitter who received it from a friend of his uh, in Afghanistan. And uh, the image of it that I have obviously has the name of the individual and their province blacked out, as well as the names of their children, which are listed in the middle of this document. Um, The particular mullah who issued this, uh, that individual's name is also... um, redacted, um, you know, so as to protect protect the people um, who, re- who are in receipt of this. So just so that you know, this is not the first of these notices, and you will understand that as I read it. So this is a notice for um, an individual and then the son of that individual and the resident of a particular province. That's how the opening sentence reads. I cannot read to you the... Um, Uh, the Islamic phrasing that appears in the middle of this document, but I will read to you the English translation of the final paragraph. Continuing the previous notice of the Muhajim of the Islamic Emirate, you are instructed to present your children, whose names are then listed, who have converted from Islam to the obsolete religion of Christianity. You are instructed to present your children to the Muhajim of the Islamic Emirate for discussion as soon as possible, You do not have the right to complain about harm to family members or your property. And then it is signed and sealed by a particular mullah. And you may be asking yourself, um, what what is the muhajin of the Islamic Emirate? Well, that um, that is the language of the Taliban. And so if you were wondering, how are our Christian brothers and sisters faring in Afghanistan? Um... What is the ideology of those who have now formed the, quote, interim government? Um, Let's be very, very clear what is going on um, and what is happening in relationship to our Christian brothers and sisters and ultimately to their children, who their government has now told them do not have the right to complain about harm to family members or to property and are now legally required to present their children who are named in these documents um, for re-education and re-indoctrination conversion, reconversion um, to Islam. If you have not already been on your knees today for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and other places around the world where um, governments, legitimate and illegitimate, seek to expunge Christians and the Christian witness from soils and sands, let me encourage you to be on your knees uh, today. 
First up this morning, we've got Ben Johnson. He is a media reporter for The Daily Wire. He uh, tweets as the rights writer, and we'll be right back. Uh, While we are working to connect our technology up with Ben Johnson, uh, let me let me give you my leftover item for the day, which I scroll down to the bottom of my notes and I cover these um, when when we have an extra minute. So you're familiar with vaccine mandates across the country. You're familiar with the the language of vaccine requirements, which I think is probably a better word um, for folks to be using. Um, so I want to bring um, into focus the city of Chicago. You're going to hear a lot about this uh, in terms of uh, what's happening with the police force and other uh, city employees, employees of the Chicago city, the city of Chicago, um, who are going to be relieved of their duties and, and placed on unpaid leave not for failure to be vaccinated, but for failure to report their vaccination status um, properly on an online portal. And um, those who do not comply are first brought in for what's called a counseling session, during which um, the portal is up in front of them on a screen and they're instructed in exactly how to enter their information accurately on the portal, um, which seems a little heavy-handed and manipulative. Um, but here's what's ultimately going to happen. There's going to be Chicago police officers who are relieved of their duties. And so when we think about the approach that we're taking in our cities, in our states, and as a nation, um, it's actually pretty easy to predict what's going to happen. It's not unintended consequences. What The, the ripple effect of removing police officers from the streets, um, it, it has very predictable consequences. And so when we're talking about the city of Chicago specifically, um, we are talking about a city where year over year um, homicides are increasing. 616 homicides in the city of Chicago um, just this year, which outpaces 2020, which had the highest rate of homicides in, uh, in, in more than two decades. So if research shows that when you add police officers in a city, homicides and other crimes go down, what might you expect to happen if police officers are put on unpaid leave or ultimately let go um, and removed from the force. Like it just, it, It's not hard to predict the outcome. So you're going to hear that this is about officer safety um, and that COVID is the leading cause of death for uh, police officers in 2020. And so let's unpack that for just a moment. It is true that COVID was the leading cause of work-related death for officers in 2020. Context matters. So when we talk about work-related deaths, we're not talking about cancer and we're not talking about heart disease, um, which both outpace COVID in terms of um, leading cause of death in the United States. COVID was the overall leading cause of death in the United States in August. It's been in the top 10 for more than a year. And so if you were asked for the leading cause of death among nearly any cohort, among any occupational group, um, it'd be the it. I I feel fairly confident. I mean, I don't actually know this to be true, but I feel fairly confident. If somebody said, "What's been the leading cause of death among on-air radio personalities?" Uh, the answer is probably COVID. It outpaces. It's a safe answer. Um, it outpaces a lot of um, of others. So, um, Chicago is now leaning on neighboring uh, counties 
to send officers to fill the gaps. And multiple sheriffs in jurisdictions near Chicago have said that they will not respond to fill those potential gaps in police manpower that are created by Chicago Mayor Lori Lori Lightfoot's COVID-19 vaccine mandate. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, what unfolds and what happens. The city of Chicago is in Cook County, and the Cook County Sheriff's Department already works with Chicago uh, PD in some targeted high-crime neighborhoods. So uh, Cook County, however, only has 300 sworn officers. So um, that's not going to be enough to fill the void that could be created um, as officers are not only put on paid leave but relieved of their duties altogether. And Chicago is not the only city facing turmoil due to vaccine mandates related to city employees who are not only police officers but also first responders. You're going to see a, a, a challenge among those who drive ambulances in in cities and rural communities across the country. Um, this is a big deal. So if you're used to being able to call 911 and have someone not only answer the phone but take your request and send someone out to help you, um, that's uh, that reality is changing in America in real time. Um, in Denver, nearly two dozen uh, first responders uh, have quit over the county's COVID-19 vaccine mandate for their employees, and it has resulted in 911 calls simply being put on hold. Just consider that for just a moment. Consider for a moment what potentially happens when a 911 call goes unanswered. Imagine it's your latchkey kid calling 911 um, because someone's breaking into your house and they're home alone when you're at work. I mean, that's what we're talking about. And so... um, We're going to not only need to be looking out for one another, we're going to need to be prepared to be looking out for ourselves. Um, If there are not emergency responders and police to respond um, and to be a deterrent to crime in high crime areas, um, America is about to become a very, very different place. Let's remind ourselves that we have laws and we need law enforcement officers because sin is real. We're not going to need police officers in heaven, but we do not yet live under the fullness of the reign of Christ. I mean, everyone has not yet bowed the knee. That day is coming. The knee, the day will come when every knee will bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the reality of the kingdom of heaven, where every person is in full submission to the king and fully um, living out the kingdom values where we won't you know, we won't need a law because it'll be written on our hearts fully and we'll be living it um, in joyful, in joyful acknowledgement of the reign of Christ. But right now, we live in the realities of a fallen world. So my encouragement today, pray, pray, and then work to extend the gospel that we might, in fact, live peaceably with everyone. And let us pray and support those who serve our communities as law enforcement officers and first responders The maintenance of our public order actually depends on them. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. This is my right. A right given by God. Hey, good morning. Brother Brother Ben is with us. Ben Johnson from uh, DailyWire.com is here. Ben, welcome back, man. Good to be with you as always, Carmen. All right, I know I made you an assignment um, last week, but let's put that assignment off till next week so you get to turn in your um, turn in your homework a week later because I want, I want to focus in, if we can, on um, what's going on with the Supreme Court Commission 
um, and other issues related to the legitimate, the quote unquote, questions of legitimacy related to the Supreme Court. So what's going on? Yeah, so, uh, of course, the president uh, appointed a commission as soon as he was elected. Of course, during the uh, during the election, he was asked several times about uh, the possibility of packing the Supreme Court or or adding new members or expanding the court, depending on uh, which side of the aisle you're on. And throughout the campaign, he said, I'm not going to take a position on it. As soon as he was elected, he appointed a commission to study it. The commission turned in 198 pages worth of uh, discussion materials. This is sort of the preliminary to their final analysis uh, just last week. And they held their first big public meeting last Friday. And uh, for those who were hoping that they would say, uh, go right ahead, uh, it was it was uh, for them a big disappointment because the uh, report made some very, uh, very reasonable uh, assessments in certain areas. One of the things they said was that if you're continually expanding the court, uh, that would undermine the legitimacy of the court in the eyes of many people, uh, for obvious reasons, because they say it would, it would seem as though the court is being politicized. So if uh, suddenly one, one group for political advantage changes the number, uh, and it happens to coincide with the exact moment that the other side finally gained a bona fide advantage or a majority on the court, uh, as conservatives just did with the uh, ascension of uh, Amy Coney Barrett last September, then uh, it would seem as though the court is being politicized. There was a big hue and cry, and uh, I want to take us back to some of those who uh, saw this last September but perhaps forgot. Uh, in in the piece that I wrote at dailywire.com, which uh, will be up on the website, I believe, momentarily, there, there are a number of citations of, of essentially every leading figure in the Democratic Party from Chuck Schumer and spokespeople for Hillary Clinton and others who said that uh, the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett, at least, was illegitimate, quote unquote, and that it called into question the, quote, legitimacy of the Supreme Court. Now, that's that's a big deal. Uh, and because, uh, of course, when you're undermining the legitimacy of institutions and particularly uh, one co-equal branch of government, uh, that's a big deal. We, we have heard uh, for the last year that uh, it's it's unseemly to question the legitimacy of a sitting president or the, le the legitimacy of an election uh, and uh, that uh, the validity that uh, with which that is true is is equally true of questioning the legitimacy of one co-equal branch of government like the Supreme Court. So when this came about, you had you had a huge national effort to discredit not only her appointment, but also at least the appointment of uh, the, her two predecessors on the court, Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch. Uh, and in some people's eyes, Alito and uh, John Roberts as well, uh, there were basically two two reasons why this was. They said that uh, the uh, presidents who appointed them didn't win the popular vote, uh, which is completely irrelevant under a constitutional system. They are not the first presidents to serve who did not win the popular vote. If winning the popular vote were the goal, they probably would have run the campaign to win the popular vote uh, rather than to win the election, which is how they ran their campaigns. And uh, so, so that was one one objection, uh, and another was that her appointment came too close to a presidential election. Now, what I point out in the piece is that if that's true of her, those two arguments also apply to the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Marshall. Uh, John Marshall, uh, this this sounds like a big walk into history, but it's an important one. 
John Marshall was appointed in 1801 by President John Adams after he lost the presidential election to Thomas Jefferson. So not only did he not win the popular vote, but he lost the election. Uh, and uh, you know, obviously, this, this came about not uh, right before an election, but after an election. So both of those hold true. Uh, John Marshall is famous. He's probably the most consequential justice in Supreme Court history because he came up with what's known as judicial review. And I know you know what it is, but your listeners may not remember the term. Judicial review is the fact that the Supreme Court has the right to look at legislation and determine whether it's constitutional or not. If it is not constitutional, it has the right to strike it down. That sounds as though that's explicit in, the, in this Constitution, but it's not actually written there if you read Article 3. He just asserted that the court had the right to do so and began doing so. And for 218 years, we have followed uh, the, that very idea, or more than 218 years at this point, uh, I guess 220 years now. Uh, we have held on to this idea uh, simply because he said that he had the right to do so. If he was illegitimate, and judicial review then would be what was what's known in legal terms as the fruit of a poison tree, if he's illegitimate, then there's no judicial review. And if there's no judicial mm. review, then Roe versus Wade isn't true anymore, that Obergefell, which establishes same-sex marriage, isn't true anymore, then none of the cases which struck down laws like prayer in schools and Bible reading and uh, posting the Ten Commandments in the public schools, none of those cases are true either. Engel v. Vital, uh, the Stone case of 1980, all of those are irrelevant. So you better be very careful when you start saying that someone is illegitimate or that an institution is illegitimate because that would undermine the entire foundation of the culture wars and the social revolution that the left has been instituting through the court for so long, which is the main reason they want to change the composition of the court anyway. It's not that they think that the court and uh, its imposition of a top-down agenda is wrong. It's that they want to keep it going because they had control of it and they've just lost control of it. So if, if the court's illegitimate, then everything that the left has done for the last two generations is also illegitimate. Um, the term illegitimate, my guess is, um, rings in people's ears um, in, 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 with a particular context or in a particular context. Um, and so I just think that when we, when we talk about words and we use words, Ben, um, you know, I guess I'm wondering, you know, how people hear that. Um, if we were to use synonyms for that word in its place in this conversation, my guess is people would find the conversation um, uh, more titillating, right? I mean, if we if we said these were bastard judges um, or bastard decisions, um, you know, that I'm just saying, like, right, that the word illegitimate has um, it rings in our ears and it it sticks there a little bit. And so I just want to encourage um uh, it, the, the the terms not only used in this conversation currently in the politics of the United States, it's also used in terms of, you know, um, whether or not people think a particular individual is serving in a particular elected position in a way that is legitimate or, quote, illegitimate. Um, and I just, you know, I think that when we start using language that has um, it has a depth of meaning that goes beyond you know, maybe what we mean in the current context, but maybe it actually does mean, maybe it does have a persistent meaning um, over time. So I just, that word is a sticky word. 
It, it absolutely is. And I'm glad you said that. I, I hope everyone takes that in the spirit in which it is offered. It's an evocative word. And you're trying to show the full depth of the meaning and the emotion that it should convey to us. Uh, you know, the idea that uh, it's something that's illegitimate is repugnant, uh, that it has no place. All of that is is inherent within the word itself, but we use it so much. Uh, and it, it was used as a talking point for at least the last year that uh, you use and, and it's used on both sides of the aisle in various capacities in order to discredit the other side that we don't understand really how how damning a word it is uh, when it's being when it's being conveyed towards someone. So uh, that that really should stick with us. And to a degree, we should also, when we use it, we should use it specifically with that idea in mind that uh, an act is illegitimate. Uh, you know, there are, there are certain Supreme Court cases, and I believe uh, that to which that word would be applicable. I would say that the original Roe v. Wade, for example, belongs in that category, where it, it's, uh, it's illegitimate jurisprudence, uh, which even many people who support the outcome, who believe in abortion on demand, say that you can't get there. You know, the, the reasoning does not hold up uh, under the Constitution. So in terms of the reasoning itself, it's bad. But then for you and I, in the terms of the outcome, 62 million abortions have followed in the wake of that 1973 decision. And so that is the illegitimacy of, uh, the, of the court in its highest form. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ben Johnson, as always, thank you for bringing clarity to some of the conversations of the day. We will just simply extend your assignment um, issued last week in relationship to um, uh, international money and um, potentially the development of central bank digital currencies, because we didn't get to talk about it this week, but um, it's still on your assignment board. Okay. I appreciate the snow day. That's Ben Johnson. We love him. He's a media reporter from the Daily Wire. You can read what he's writing at dailywire.com. We'll be right back. We have an incredible number of people in the culture today, maybe including you, um, who feel unseen, right? We live in an increasing level of isolation from others. Um, What can Hagar, who is one of the women of the Bible, um, what can she teach us about being seen and about the God who sees? How could we be encouraged by Hagar as as an example or a pattern? Um, We're going to talk with Marina Hoffman-Willard. She joins me for a conversation about the Women of the Bible small group Bible study, um, which you can find at womeninthebible.info. And we're going to talk with her about how we can be encouraged by the stories of the women um, who know God and are known by God in the Bible. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Have you ever been caught in a raging storm? Often it's those sudden downpours that catch us off guard and leave us miserably soaked. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Anyone who's raised a family has been surprised by the occasional dark clouds or the sudden outburst of emotion. The storm inside the house is often far worse than the rainfall outside the house. So mom, dad, when the tornado strikes, wait it out. Look for ways to be the shelter for your family a safe harbor in the storm when the winds of adversity blow strong. You can make choices now that will lead your family to safety later. Are you ready to hunker down and survive the storm? Do you feel like you've come to the end of your rope? 
Learn how to get your teen back on track with one of Mark Gregston's parenting seminars. For a list of upcoming events, go to parentingtodaysteens.org. Dr. Marina Hoffman. She's a Bible and theology professor at Palm Beach Atlantic University. Uh, her new book is Women in the Bible. It's a small group Bible study. You can find it and the free video series on women in the Bible at womeninthebible.info. Marina, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Hi, Carmen. I'm glad to be here, and I really appreciate your your show, so thanks for having me. Well, thanks so much for joining us. So, I think that it was just yesterday, it might have been the day before yesterday, we were talking with a guest and he was he was talking about the number one need in the culture today being that of isolation and loneliness. Um, and the way that he described that was people have an overwhelming need to know that they are seen. And I immediately thought of Hagar, and that leads us into a conversation about one of the women in the Bible featured in this small group Bible study. So tell us about Hagar and how she speaks to the suffering and isolation that we experience today. Yeah, so here we have this young woman who is often overlooked in the book of Genesis because her story is shadowed by the larger narrative of Abraham and Sarah. But here she is in the household of Abraham and Sarah being used as a surrogate to provide a child for Sarah. But the story does not go well. It does not end up being Sarah's child and things um, Hagar's abused in the situation and gets so desperate and upset that she runs away. And Carmen, if you can picture a woman alone in a wilderness in the ancient world, no sense of security. She seems unprepared. It's a really life and death situation, even with the wild animals that would be roaming. So what I love about this story is that even though she's so desperate and so isolated and probably afraid, she encounters God in a powerful way and it's perhaps because of her desperation that she encounters God in such a real way. I love the way that God um, comes to Hagar and reveals himself. So what do we know about God um, from the story of Hagar? Oh, it's, you know, we see this theme all throughout Scripture, but maybe most pointed in the story of Hagar, that God cares about every single person. It's not just the big shots and the leaders and those with power, but more often than not, God is made so personal and is revealed so strongly to those who are in need of Him. And how beautiful, because I think, Carmen, a lot of us can relate to that, being desperate, being isolated, and yet as we suffer, we can encounter God in new ways and just become so much more aware of His presence in our life. And as God works things out, maybe against all odds, we just build faith and realize God is one we can put our trust and hope in. It's always interesting, um, Marina, to think about the way we the way we think uh, about and characterize some of the men in the Bible. I mean, when we think of Joseph's story, we, we you know, we do we sort of focus in on how God used what others meant for evil and God used it for good. I'm not sure that we think about stories of of Hagar or some of the other women in the Bible with those same sort of um, exultant um, descriptions. And so thank you for uh, highlighting these women of the Bible. The study is Women in the Bible. You can find it at womeninthebible.info. There's also a video series there as well. Um, Marina, as we, you know, 
as we face uncertainties, which, you know, there I think there are times and seasons where things feel fairly certain, where we feel like we're walking on pretty level ground. That is not the reality today. I don't really care who you are or where you live. Um, these times in which we live feel uncertain. And so um, I think our natural response to uncertainty is fear, but that's not the faithful response. So maybe introduce us to a group of women in the Old Testament who faced uncertainty with real courage. Yes, what a topic for today, courage. I think of this story of the midwives and a little bit like Hagar, they're often unknown. Their story comes at the beginning of Exodus. And what I love is that, as you say, we know a lot about the big characters and almost everyone on earth must know this story of Moses and we've seen the movies. So we have this book in Exodus of wonderful, big miracles. And what's the first thing God does? It's the miracle through the lives of these two women. And here they are living their life out as midwives and everything changes, Carmen, just like this world has changed so much for us. And these women are called into the king's court and the king says he wants to depopulate the Hebrews. And would these two women kill all the baby boys. And Carmen, he definitely asked the wrong two people to kill the babies. <laughs> right. So for people who aren't familiar um, with these characters, why don't you tell them the names of the midwives and um, and then maybe help us see, you know, how how their experience is reflected, at least in some people's lives today. Yes, absolutely. So these women are Shipra and Pua, and that opens up the whole topic of whether they were Hebrew or Egyptian. But here they are faced with a huge question in mind because their whole life and calling is to bring about life to others, to make sure the mom and the baby are safe and healthy. And so how are they going to get go against everything they believe in to commit repeated murder after these children are born? And, you know, it's easy to say, well, they were so strong and fearless, but actually, Carmen, they were afraid. The Bible says they feared, but who did they fear more? They feared God more than the king. So how incredible that they went forward anyways and refused to obey the king, but they continued their mission. And then they find this clever way of tricking the king. They tell the king that Egyptian women are weaker and Hebrew women are stronger and they have the babies before the midwives even come, which is totally ridiculous because everyone who knows about <laughs> birth knows it's not an ethic or racial issue. And second of all, if the women don't need the, if the women giving birth don't need the midwives, then why are they even employed? So it's all ridiculous, but how incredible that they just keep answering God's call and does, God does something extraordinary. And who is saved in this generation of boys? Moses, being one of the people God saved. So their legacy is very long-lasting. And here we are today talking about the courage they had and how they overcame even their fear to do something for God. So Marina, I mean, these women would be maybe the first in a long line of women who we could study just in relationship to the life of Moses. Um, I mean, as you, you know, as you think about him, um, gosh, there's just so many women whose stories leap into my mind um, in terms of, you know, the women who who made it possible for Moses to not only live, but then become the man 
that he became. So anyway, there you go. There's a there's an yeah. there's another there's a follow-up Bible study for you. We got to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation um with Marina Hoffman. You can find what we're talking about today and the accompanying video series at womeninthebible.info. We'll be right back. It's like the We're continuing our conversation with Marina Hoffman. Um, she is a professor and a Bible teacher. She is a mom. And we're talking about a uh, a Bible study that is available right now at her website, womeninthebible.info. It is a look at some of the women in the Bible, um, as well as a video uh, teaching series that you can, that you can use for free as well. Um, Marina, who was Hannah? And what particular challenge did she face that that many women face today? Well, Hannah's at the beginning of the book of Samuel. And again, we find a woman and this beautiful story that includes God working in great ways at the beginning of a major time in history. The kings followed the story of Hannah. So here she is, and she's married, and she's ha- there's a second wife in this marriage who has many children. And poor Hannah, she has no children. And the Bible, Carmen, tells us multiple times, it's a little subtle, the Bible tells us multiple times of these all these children, all the sons and all the daughters of the second wife. So why do we need to know this three times? Because I think the Bible is trying to tell us the isolation, the desperation, the daily struggle that Hannah faces without children. So what a beautiful story. We find Hannah in the temple crying out to God for a child and really begging the Lord, very real emotions. And God works things out wonderfully to her. It's a story I love because I face infertility too. So how inspiring to look at Hannah's response. Hmm. Um, you know, I can't just let that pass, right? I mean, you're, you're sharing there something that um, is true for you that a lot of women listening right now are facing themselves. Um, or, you know, there's husbands listening who's, you know, who are in marriages where God is not producing the fruit of the womb. Um, Maybe just pause there for a moment. I mean, we have so many women in Scripture who deal with what I would call, you know, what today we would call problem pregnancies, Um, and the the inability to conceive or to conceive in a timeline that we think is, you know, the right time to have a baby. I guess, you know, Elizabeth comes to mind um, when I think about uh, the birth of John the Baptist and how long uh, she and Zechariah faithfully waited for God to send them a child. So just talk with us about that uh, the emotions related to your own and ex- your own experience of that, if you would. Yes, Carmen, I was completely desperate and I didn't hide that at all. We were in a severe car crash a couple years beforehand and both my husband and I should have died. We had extensive injuries and we struggled so much to get back on our feet. And finally, two years later, we went to the doctor and had all these tests and Carmen were sitting there in the follow-up meeting and he puts a piece of paper in front of us and it says 0.00001 in this huge font. And of course, the obvious question is, oh, what is this number? And he says, so that's the result of all the tests. That's your results. That's your likelihood of having a child. Mm. Well, you can imagine the feeling that all I see is endless zeros. And 
it was very stressful and upsetting for a moment. But I have to say, a moment later, I felt such relief because it was like a burden was lifted off of me. I realized that this number was not about you know, did I have a bite of chocolate or, you know, did I have enough vegetables yesterday? This was an impossible situation that was God-sized. And in a sense, it relieved the pressure for me because I just needed to put it in God's hands and trust Him entirely. And it's a very hard path for sure. God eventually gave me a child and, you know, she was a very special child. And I would encourage your listeners who are longing for a child and having a lot of trouble that in the Bible so many times, when a couple are frustrated and have to wait a long time for a child from God. That child is very special. And I will say my little Willow loves the Lord deeply. She's three. She's been praying since she could talk. She prays for people. She lays hands and prays for healing. So keep waiting. Keep trusting God. God has ways that we don't always understand until we look back. Hmm. Hmm. Um, Willow is um, is a little miracle, and um, uh, thank you for sharing about her. Um, every story of infertility does not end this way, and um, uh, Marina and I recognize that, and um, we recognize that God also provides children for us in in other ways. Um, I have you know six step kids, and you guys who listen on a regular basis know that. Uh, and God t- continues to grow our family through foster care and adoption and um, and grandbabies as well. And so uh, as God brings children into your life, however he sends them, let us receive them as a sacred trust and let us be dutiful in um, in raising them in, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Marina, let's, um, let's talk about—we have time to talk about one more of the women of the Bible in this study. Do you want to talk about Esther or do you want to talk about Mary? Well, Mary is of late my favorite character. I would love to talk about her. Let's do that. Let's do that because she has a very high calling. Let's talk about Mary and the uh, and the inspiration of her faithfulness. Yeah, so my whole life when I thought of Mary, and I think I was influenced by these Catholic beautiful images and art of the halo around Mary, and she's always perfect. And so I felt very other. And then I had a child, Carmen, and Mary's status went skyrocketing because that child is always perfectly seated on her lap, never squirming, (laughs) never crying. And my daughter never sits still, not from the womb till now. So I thought, wow, she is just unreachable and I admire her, but I don't think I will be getting personal anything from her life. So here I am doing this study. And I thought when I did the video series, I thought, you know what, I really need to connect other women to Mary. I can't talk about how we can relate to all these women and not really have that personal encounter myself. So I start to look at the life of Mary. And I'm sure it was the Lord who spoke to me and said, you know what, what's the fundamental aspect of Mary's life? She's called to bear a child, uh, the child of, of God, of course, and that defines the rest of her whole life. But Carmen, I feel that that's also our mission. We are called to bear Christ, not literally, but every day, all the time to the people around us through our words and actions. And when I began to see that I had the same calling as Mary, I thought, wow, how does she fulfill her calling? And that question definitely led me to see so much more in the life of Mary, just in the way she acts and responds to this call. Okay, unpack that a little bit more, Marina. When you say that we bear Jesus into the world, like talk about that, unpack that for us. 
Sure. Well, again, you know, it comes at a time when I have a little baby that I'm writing this book in the middle of, and it is so easy to be impatient. And this applies across the board, right? With the spouse, with a friend, all our loved ones. It is hard to be patient and kind and bear the fruits of the spirit every day. And it's almost an ongoing test daily. Will we say the things that Christ would say? Will we lead people to the salvation they have in Christ, the life, the hope, and how much more in this time when people, as you said, are isolated, there's so much uncertainty, there's so much fear in society. You know, so many people now, they don't even look up at the grocery store. There's such Mm. a, there's a mile between us, between the masks and the fear of me standing there and the need to scrub everything and never touch my hand accidentally when I pass over my cash. So how sad that our society has become so dehumanized, I feel, in the last year and a half. And yet the story of Mary is one that is dedicated to Christ, to bringing Christ faithfulness day after day. And surely she was ridiculed, Carmen. Mm. Of course she was. The whole society was against Jesus by the end, but she presses forward. She's there at all these key moments. And one more thought, Carmen, what is the end of Mary's story? You would think that once Jesus has gone to heaven, surely her job as a mom is completely finished and maybe she can revisit those dreams of her childhood but no mary is found in the upper room waiting for the holy spirit and establishing the early church on earth it's to me an incredible story of the legacy of hearing from god even as a young woman and saying i will let god redefine my future and define all my actions going forward so what a call to us to be faithful to the end And Carmen, if we are faithful and if we follow God's call on Mary's life to bear Christ, we too can enter into Mary's favoredness and blessedness by God, and that God is with us in the same way that the angel promised he would be with Mary. Yeah, and I love the way Jesus cares for her, even from the cross, to, you know, to say to the disciple whom he loved, Behold your mother, and then then to his own mother, behold your son. And it says that, you know, John took her from that day into his own home. Mary had other children, um, but Jesus commits her to, you know, his brother in Christ, um, that the that the church would become her family and, and the body of believers to care for her, which I think there's a lesson um, of, of for each of us and all of us in that as well. Marina, wow, what a joy. Thank you so much for joining us. You guys can find Marina Hoffman on Instagram. Hoffman has one F. Uh, Marina Hoffman, you can also find the book and the teaching video series, which is free for you at womeninthebible.info. Marina, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.